What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I wish you could all hear what Dom Chu just said. Uh, Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. The Fed lagging, working from home selfish, China most likely invading Taiwan, and profiting from AI is like turning a rainforest into a lumberyard. Elon Musk certainly didn't hold back in his exclusive CNBC interview. We'll debate all of those biggest moments investors are still talking about today, plus the ramifications. And with time running out to reach a deal, we'll run through three debt ceiling scenarios and the REITs that could benefit or hurt the most. That's right, there's a REIT angle here. And mortgage demand drops as interest rates hit a two-month high. Could home price declines be next? No one expects it, but we'll tell you what you need to know if you're in the market to buy a home. And we'll begin with today's trading session. And I just have one word for it, Dom. Wow. Wow is right. And as for those comments I have off camera, Kelly, we don't share them because they're not safe for work. That's the reason why. <laughs> anyway, so uh, to Kelly's point, we've got a nice little rebound out of yesterday's down session. It wasn't down by a whole heck of a lot. But today's rise isn't by a whole heck of a lot either. Still, though, it's notable because we have green across the screen. And by the way, we're just at about near session highs right now. Let's start with the Dow Industrials. 33,401, the last trade there. Again, 390 points nearly to the upside, up north of 1%. Similar percentage move for the S&P 500, still solidly now above 4,100. 4,152 is the last trade there. And just kind of for you know your context here, up 43 points right now at the highs or the highs of the session. We were up just around 43 points. At the lows, we were still up about four. So it's been generally positive, and we are seeing some momentum towards the upside of the session right now. Similar percentage move for the Nasdaq composite up 123 points, 12,466. A couple of the stocks that we want to just highlight because they do have something in common. They're not in the same industry or sector. One of them is D.R. Horton, which has been up 60% over the last 12 months. Amerisource Bergen has been up 11%. Different moves, but still, both of these guys get gold stars because both of these stocks hit record highs in the session earlier on. D.R. Horton on the housing trade, Amerisource Bergen when it comes to drug and medical products distribution. Again, different industry groups, but still two of the stocks, the only two at one point today that have made record highs in this tape. And then if you look at the stock of the day, Tesla, on the heels of that annual shareholder meeting and the big interview with CNBC's David Faber, Tesla shares up about 4% right now, seeing some momentum, trying to kind of get out of this range that we've seen over the last couple of months. But between new vehicle models being hinted at, the Cybertruck coming out later on this year, CEO Elon Musk pouring some cold water on him, possibly stepping down at some point as Tesla CEO, and maybe even advertising to sell cars versus word of mouth. Kelly, there was so much stuff to unpack. Still, though, Tesla is a stock that's trying to find some footing. It still trades at around 50 times forward earnings right now, but we'll keep a close eye on whether or not this could be the bullish move that some Tesla investors want to see to get it moving to the upside. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. For now, Dom, thanks. Look at that. Dow's up almost 400 points. Tesla wasn't the only topic Musk talked about. He also touched on the Fed, on AI, and on China. And let's start with those comments about U.S.-China tensions, which Musk says should be a concern for everyone. 
Do you think, for example, China will, will make a move to take control of Taiwan? The official, the official, the official policy of China is uh, that um, Taiwan should be integrated. One does not need to read between the lines. One can simply read the lines. That would not be good for Tesla, conceivably, or for any, any company in the world, frankly. Yes, for any company in the world. I, I think most, almost no, no one realizes that uh, uh, the Chinese economy and, and the, global, the rest of the global economy are like conjoined twins. Uh, it, it would be like trying to separate conjoined twins. That, that's the severity of the situation. It's likely to happen. I'm simply saying that that is their policy, and I think you should take their words seriously. <laughs> they mean it. So what does it mean for international stocks? Andres Garcia Amaya is the CEO of Zoe Financial. He's been bullish on international stocks. Welcome, Andre, for some time. And the same reason that Musk cites for concern, the conjoined twins metaphor, is the reason why a lot of people stay constructive on U.S.-China relations, because they are so intertwined. Yeah, I think it's interesting on the comments. I did get get to see the interview. Great interview, uh, by the way, by by you guys. Uh, the if if we are going to continue to see deglobalization, that's inflationary, uh, especially for countries like the U.S. that were tied at the hip, right, with supply chains uh, for global companies that uh, that trade in the S and P five hundred, right. So I think it's hard to see on one side the idea that the Fed should lower interest rates because uh, they're looking at backwards data and on the other side say, yeah, but deglobalization is happening and it will probably continue to happen because that's inflationary. So I think U.S. stocks, the reason in essence international stocks look appealing to me is that U.S. stocks valuation is not attractive right now versus historical standards, especially with interest rates where they are now versus where they were in, in past years. You know, maybe not to comment, Andres, quite so much on whatever happens between U.S. and China and what major companies like Apple should do. But we are seeing ramifications throughout kind of Southeast Asia. You know, the Philippines, for instance, trying to kind of lean into its U.S. relations. And, and it tried kind of to grow closer to China, but it, it wasn't well received by the Chinese or by the Philippine people. So would you in a market like that, for instance, take that as a positive or not? You know, I'm not going to ask you market by market, but when yeah. you say you like international stocks, what what are the implications for some of those Asian regions that still depend heavily on the Chinese economy? Yeah, look, the the risk of deglobalization applies to every region. I think the big difference is valuation, right? U.S. stocks have asymmetric risk, in my opinion, when it comes to what could go right and what could go wrong versus where valuation is right now, especially versus the other options like cash and bonds versus international stocks, especially versus U.S. stocks. There are two, three standard deviations from where they usually trade from a valuation standpoint. So a lot of bad news is already priced in. Yeah, that said, you know, and I, I guess just to kind of ask the question explicitly, let's say you're Apple, you know, you're the most valuable company, you know, back and forth in the world, maybe today, maybe not today, one of the most valuable companies in the world. Yeah. They're trying to move some of the supply chain to India. That's fine. They've got a long road to go. What do you do if you're them? I mean, should, is this something investors need to worry about or can they just ignore it until they can't? I think that margins will be affected negatively, right? The globalization was all about creating efficiencies, which are great for margins, 
Uh, what we're seeing now with deglobalization is about resiliency. And resiliency is not about improving margins. It's about having uh, you know, a plant in India and in Taiwan and in Vietnam, right? That's not as efficient. So I think this will hurt margins. It won't happen over one quarter, but I think this is a longer trend over the next couple of years. Yeah, or maybe you could say that moving factory activity elsewhere could benefit those countries it's moving to. And China's right. economy remains an open question. I mean, on the case of Chinese stocks or, or their economic fortunes in the next year or two, do you have a view? Yeah, look, Chinese stocks uh, have been a, a value trap for uh, well over a decade, right? And they are a significant part of the MSCI EM index, for instance, right? Having said that, when you look at global X US, China becomes a much smaller component. So I would look at it more from a global perspective. You look at Europe, you look at Japan, which actually looks really interesting right now, considering they actually want this inflation that they're getting. They're, they have deflation, now they have inflation. So it's not just China when it comes to global stocks. And I think it's important to look at it that way. It's also striking that Japan now has like the highest birth rate in all of Southeast Asia, you know, or, or at least developed Southeast Asia, which is, which is striking. They're right. more open to immigration. Yeah, and by the way, uh, they're making a lot of corporate changes, which I think is, has been one of the, call it catalyst for the market to be up. You know, the uh, Japanese stocks are up 16, 17% this year, for instance. Quick final question, Andres. The Dow's up 430 points. You've repeatedly emphasized that you think the U.S. market is overvalued. What the heck is going on here? Wait, wait, when you mean when the, with, the, um, with the Treasury potential default? No, we're rallying again, right? The S&P is kind of hanging on to these gains that everyone thinks are kind of built on sand. And yet the resiliency is impressive. You have to call it that. Um, what do you make of it? Absolutely. Look, I think that capital markets are very slow to adapt to regime changes. And in my opinion, we had a regime change when it comes to inflation. And the market keeps trying to kind of convince itself, stocks in particular, of, nope, it's going to go back to where it was before. And you can see that by where the market's pricing Fed funds rate to be by the end of the year, right? The, the market's still expecting the Fed to lower interest rates. So I think it'll just take time for the capital markets to adjust to the new reality. Because you don't think they're going to lower? I don't think they're going to lower. For when the, when the regional banks were in trouble, I thought that if things got really bad there, they might be forced to. But if it becomes more of like an episodic scenario, I don't think the Fed uh, really has a huge incentive to lower. Hmm. They're focused on inflation, not on where the stock market is going to go next. All right. Fascinating. Andres, thank you. Still remaining bullish on international versus U.S. equities, Andres Garcia Amaya. Elon Musk in that interview also criticized the Fed's rate hike strategy that we were discussing. Take a listen. You can think of raising the Fed, Fed rate as, as somewhat of a brake pedal in the economy, frankly. It's, uh, it's, um, it, it, it makes a lot of things more expensive, uh, certainly things that are bought with credit, but then it has downstream effects on, on even things that aren't bought with credit. So, um, you know, if, if the car payment or your home mortgage payment is absorbing more of your monthly budget, then you have less to, money to buy other things. So actually, it, it affects everything, even those that aren't things that aren't bought on, right. on credit. So, um, and, and my concern with the, the, with the, the way the, the Federal Reserve is making decisions is that they, they're just operating with um, too much latency. Basically, the, the data is, is, is somewhat stale. So, they, so the Federal Reserve was, was slow to raise interest rates. Um, and, and, and now I think they are, are slow to, they're, they're going to be slow to lower them. 
too much latency. Musk's comments come as higher rates are eating away at mortgage demand. Applications to purchase a home dropped nearly 5% last week. They're still down 26% from the same time last year. For more on what it means for housing, let's ask Lawrence Yoon. He's the chief economist at the National Association of Realtors. Lawrence, welcome. Any signs that prices are going to drop or you think they're just going to stay up here? Uh, Good afternoon, Kelly. Well, the prices are holding on for the most part, but there are some regional variation out in the West, the very expensive region of the country, always most sensitive to the mortgage rate changes. Prices have come down. Uh, In San Francisco, it has come down in the 10% range. But rest of the country is seeing mild price increases. I would say roughly half of the country on the positive territory and half of the country on the negative territory, but only modestly. I guess the biggest driving factor has basically just been household formation. You know, people who wanted to get out of the city, take their kids to a backyard. The pandemic accelerated that. Um, How much more pent up demand do you think there is or has it been exhausted? Oh, well, you know, one third of the property right now are getting multiple offers. So the fact that there are multiple offers means that there is insufficient supply to fully meet the all of the demand. Now, it's principally happening on the mid-priced home or slightly below. On the upper end market, luxury market, uh, I think it's a buyer's market. Buyers can get a good price negotiation, but on a starter home, Expect multiple offers, other buyers competing at the same time. So it is a very interesting market dynamics. The sales activity, mortgage applications are all down roughly 20% from one year ago. Yet prices holding on and multiple offers happening on one third of the property listings. You know, we talk about kind of making homes more affordable or trying to to get at this, but compressing that spread between mortgage rates and the 10-year would go a long way. Is it the Fed's own fault in some ways that it has gone extra wide because they've been selling or, I don't know, rolling off, maybe someday selling their uh, mortgage-backed securities? I mean, what would it take to get that back to historical norms? And if it was at historical norms, how much lower would mortgage rates be right now? Uh, Well, if we had a normal spread between the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, today, mortgage rates would be 100 basis point lower. Wow. In other words... 5.5% mortgage rate. I mean, that will bring additional buyers into the marketplace. Now, we don't have enough supply. So we have to think about long-term solution to supply, which involve home building. But in the short term, I think some policymakers should be very creative. Do we provide some tax incentive for mom and pop investors who happen to own real estate as an investment property, rental income, to uh, unload those property onto the market with lower capital gains tax. I think we need to consider some strong short-term incentive to bring more supply because clearly there are demand out there. That's super interesting because I hear from people, obviously, who are trying to actually get into the market and say, you know, in an inflationary time, I'd like to own a property and collect that rental income. And, you know, maybe I can do quite well over time, but they would worsen the dynamic that you're talking about. And there are tax incentives encouraging them to do so. Uh, Yes, especially designed, you know, just for the short-term supply increase. So it can be designed specifically to say that if the buyer is an owner-occupant and the seller is a real estate investor, well, maybe lower capital gains tax will provide that incentives. But right now, housing market, very interesting dynamics. You know, the sales are down, yet multiple offers still happening and prices still rising in half of the country. Quick final question, because I, you know, I think Musk is right that the Fed is responding with too much latency. They're responding to lagging data. They did it on the way up. They're doing it now on the way down. But I don't know if you would agree with that. 
Oh uh, yeah, I would say the Fed needs to cut interest rate now, uh, right now because we have a robust apartment building. That means all these empty rental units will be hitting the marketplace. Therefore, the rents, the strong heavyweight of the consumer price index component, the rents will decelerate and that will bring overall CPI down. So knowing this and also the economy, not very robust. GDP only 1%, business spending a negative. I think the Fed should consider cutting rates before the year end. I'm nominating you. What, what region are you in, Lawrence? Which, for, which Fed seat could you take? <laughs> well, I'm looking at the housing market, but certainly housing market, uh, you know, very little distressed sell, but it is an interesting time. Yes. Lawrence Yoon, thanks for your time today. It's good to check in with you. Thank you. Joining me from the National Association of Realtors. Still ahead, some controversial allegations about open AI. We'll talk about Musk's comments next with the CEO of one AI unicorn that's sticking with the open source model. Plus, President Biden calling yesterday's meeting on the debt ceiling productive, and you see markets up big today. So are we suddenly close to striking a deal? Well, our guest lays out three scenarios and what they mean for the REITs that are already reeling for higher rates. And as we head to break, here's a look at the gains we were just referencing. The Dow's up nearly 400 points, 1% gains for the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ. While the Russell's up 2% today as the regional banks rebound, the 10-year yield creeping up to 357, almost 358. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. To monetize or not to monetize? Ever since ChatGPT came on the scene, there's been a heated debate over whether and how companies like its developer OpenAI should profit from it. Elon Musk weighing in last night, stressing that profit was not what he had in mind when he invested some $50 million in OpenAI during its infancy. It does seem weird that something can be um, a nonprofit uh open source and somehow transform itself into a for-profit closed source. Um, I mean, this would be like, like, let's say you funded an organization to save the Amazon rainforest, and instead they became a, a lumber company <laughs> and chopped down the forest and sold it for money. And you'd be therefore like, well, wait a second, that's uh, the exact opposite of what I gave the money for. OpenAI does now charge other companies for access to its platform. It also licenses its tech Unlike my next guest, who says his company will remain open source. Joining me now is Emed Mostak. He's the founder and CEO of Stability.ai. Welcome to you. We're also joined by Deer Jabosa and Steve Kovac. And wait, Deer, that, that does not... 
okay, in fairness, Iman, wow. we didn't have a, you know, enormous. Oh my goodness. These are the AI generated Is images. This an improvement? <laughs> um, they missed a few things, I think. <laughs> I'm yeah. Stephen Deirdre using the technology. So, Iman, why don't you run us through what's going on behind the scenes here? So, yeah, so we released um, Stable Diffusion and Image Generation AI open source last August, where we took two billion images, a snapshot of the internet, and squished it down into a two gigabyte file. That drove a lot of these avatar apps you see in text-to-image generation. I think it was four of the top 10 App Store apps on the App Store in December. But these data sets aren't good enough. And these models aren't good enough because of the data. You want to have your own CNBC model. You want to have your own Portuguese model and other totally. things. And this is a big part of this debate that's happened right now. Because the data sets of these models are black boxes. And we don't know what's inside them. So we wanted to push this stuff into the open for safety and also for customizability. We all have about a trillion questions we're gonna to try to get through. <laughs> so my, my first and then I'll turn it over is, uh, because to me the most obvious question here is copyright. We're already seeing major organizations, you know, I can think of a Getty Images for instance, mm. saying, wait a minute, our pixels are involved in the recreation of these. Um, how are you trying to get ahead of that? And, and can you kind of address the business model and whatever it is in, in that response as well? Yeah, so I think this is a really fascinating thing because if you take two billion images, 100,000 gigabytes, you get a two gigabytes output, what is that? Is that fair use, is it not? We have Mark Lemley from Stanford. He has an amazing piece on that, on fair use, and he wrote the book on it. And so that's leading kind of our legal side. This is, these are questions we have to answer. So one of the things we did is we opted opt out, unlike everyone else. So we had 169 million images opted out of our data set Interesting. for the next version. Because I think that's the reasonable thing to do and the right thing to do. Whereas a lot of other companies are just trading on whatever, and you don't know what's going inside, and then you don't know what's going out of it which is why the models are turning a bit weirder and a bit crazier. Yes, a lot of them, and Deirdre, I'm going to bring you in here, but a lot of them start out when people use them the first couple of times to go, wow, this is amazing, and then all of a sudden they start to lose some of their edge. Go ahead, Deirdre. Yeah, so I think this whole discussion between an open and closed uh, source model is really interesting, Ahmed. Uh, some of the questions around that, though, is how stable are some of the open source models? And to that point, there's the back-end development. How many AI researchers or engineers does Stability AI actually employ, and how many are contracted? Oh, so we've got about 78 full-time AI engineers doing language, image, audio, everything. So we do all the different modalities. And then we have a separate collaboration with about 200 university researchers and others. So I think we're the fourth largest provider of compute to U.S. academia okay. right now. We split so into you've two. got the majority yeah. is outside of the actual organization. So how do businesses, how can they be confident that your model is reliable and it's not going to change based on the turnover or the whims of an engineering force that you don't necessarily employ or control? So what we do is our team builds the stable series of models. Um, and so that's what's going into Amazon's new bedrock service and things, where everything is measured. It's only built by our team. And then the other 200 are just stimulating academic innovation because oh. there wasn't enough compute for academic innovation, but those are not commercial models. So we split okay. it into and two, the open core model, as it were. Maybe a last one for me. Um, I know there's also, based on that too, some of the clarity around who's with the organization, who isn't. There's been a lack of clarity, claims of a lack of clarity on Stability AI's IP, and I wonder if you can clear those up. Yeah, and that's why we kind of, originally we were like, let's all collaborate together. And then it was like, this is getting confusing. So we said, stability models, the stable series, 100% stability. And then the other stuff we kind of fund. And then, like I said, you want to have full auditability. You want to know every single thing and all the IP is completely secure because open models are required for private data. They're required for regulated data and other things like that as well. 
And so we wanted to make that very clear. And this is part of learning as an organization as you grow. Before I bring in Steve, so I guess I would say, are you a business right now? I mean, is there revenue? Are there going to be earnings? Or is this just an academic exercise? Oh, no, we're a business. We've got eight-digit revenue, you know, and that's running up rapidly. Coming from where? Who's pay it comes from the API at the moment. But uh, as one example, we announced the Amazon Bedrock service, where you can take our open models of revenue modality to your data center in your cloud, and you can fine-tune and train it. And then we have an agreement with Amazon whereby we participate in the upside for that. So when you say you want to remain open source, what would your response be? I, I'm sort of confused somewhat as to the difference between being a profitable business, which Musk seems unhappy about, and being open source, which isn't necessarily in conflict with that. Can you just address that? I think OpenAI came at a time when it was very difficult to have these models. The models weren't good enough right, as a business model. Right now, though, you're looking and you're seeing CNBC, for example, you can't send all your internal data to OpenAI or Microsoft. But inside your Amazon cloud or other clouds, you'll be able to use our language models because you'll own them. Yep. And that's a valuable thing. So OpenAI is no longer open source in terms of they will not open source their models. And Ilya Sutskivar and other people have said that they don't believe in that anymore. They open source other models. Um, whereas we're open source by default because we think open mm -hmm. is required for auditable models. That's required for private data. IP rich data, and there's a business model that's amazing for that. All right, Steve, I, I'm struggling to keep up here. J go ahead. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, Ahmad, I was, I was curious. I was on Capitol Hill yesterday listening to Sam Altman's testimony, and, you know, one of the things that came up was not necessarily open source, but transparency, meaning, mm. you know, the, the idea that you would disclose uh, how you're training mm. your models and, and so forth. We know OpenAI and Microsoft keep that talk, uh, locked down, as does Google. And there's a lot of talk. How are these models being trained? So while you're saying you're open source, are you also being open and transparent about how your models are trained and what data sets are you using? Because that seems to be a big key for how regulators are thinking about AI. 100%. We make our data sets open, our models open. And next week, we're actually moving to open training. So we're going to show live how these models are training in image and language and others. Because we think that transparency is required. Like I said, especially if you're talking about regulated industry and other things. These models will be the biggest impact on healthcare, education, and others. And how can you have black boxes on that? How can governments run on black boxes? So does that mean OpenAI and Google, are they making a mistake by keeping their data sets kind of locked down and secret? No, I think you'll have both. I think you'll have hybrid AI. So you're going to use some things for closed that are amazing, because it will always be better than open, because you can bring proprietary data to it. And other people will want open, auditable models for their private data. So you have the stuff in the cloud and then the stuff that you use outside the cloud. You know, this all may seem a little esoteric, but if you guys, I mean, if, if video is next, can you just, we, you know, I think, do we have the gardening images? If anyone wants to know, deep fakes, okay, and the political, th this came up on Capitol Hill yesterday, mm. this idea of how will we know if something is an AI-generated image versus, not, not in the creative realm where people, we already have artists who can do yeah. that, but is it a representation of a fact that doesn't exist, i.e. me having you know, any capability or, or any green thumb? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not gardening. But that <laughs> yeah. Is that and, you, Kelly? It, I, that's me. Are you supposed uh, to be? Is, is video next? Yeah, video's coming, audio now. You've seen the thing with Grimes and others. You've got perfect audio, video, images, they're all coming. In the next few years, you'll be able to generate Hollywood-level movies live. And this is why we need standards around it. So we set up stability and we work with multiple governments on national data sets to replace crawled data sets. National models, national standards. So in all our models, we have invisible watermarking, we have attribution coming in. Because so we think the open side can be a million different types or you can standardize it. And so that's what we're doing as our business model. It's a completely different total addressable market to the Googles and OpenAIs of the world, and it's only possible now. So quick last question. Again, we, could, we hope to continue this many a time. Um, after the hearing yesterday, what do you think is the direction that policy is going to go? 
I think the policy will move towards some sort of regulated entity, but it's a case of how do you balance innovation and regulation? Because on the one hand, this will transform entire industries and lead to massive productivity increases. So 50% of all code on GitHub is AI generated now. Wow. And code is a 40% more efficient. But then there are some real risks, which is why I signed the FLI letter with Elon Musk and others, where we have a six month window now to have better data sets and better practices to curb some of these really dangerous things that could happen. Yeah, no, as we're showing more, more AI generated. They are pretty good. They've gotten spooky, <laughs> spookily good. Creation is fun. Yes, it is fun. Uh, terrifying. Imad, thank you so much for your time today. It's really great to have you here. Steve and Deirdre, My thank friend. you for now. Our Steve Kovac, Deirdre Bosa. Yeah, the actual people for, for the time being. Give it six months. Speaking of AI, ServiceNow and NVIDIA are announcing a new partnership to build generative AI across enterprise IT. Both of those CEOs will be on Closing Bell Overtime today at 4 p.m. Eastern time. You definitely don't want to miss it. Still ahead, Target shares are higher after delivering an earnings beat despite barely growing sales. What does it bode for Walmart's report tomorrow morning? We will discuss. And as we go to break, here's a look at the regional banks and the KRE. PacWest and Western Alliance are leading the way on a day when everybody is in the green and Zions, Comerica, and Key and Lincoln National are all leading the S&P. Dow's up 408. The exchange is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're near session highs with the Dow up 412 points. Enthusiasm about a resolution on the debt ceiling seems to be driving this. Uh, if we get any real breakthroughs, obviously, we'll bring that to you. The S&P up 1.2%, 41.58 today. The Nasdaq up literally about the same amount. The Dow is back in positive territory for the year. Remember, it closed below <clears throat> Excuse me, its 50-day moving average yesterday, but it sprung back up above that level. The break-even for the year is 33.147, so we are comfortably above that. 33.151 is the 50-day moving average. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update up to the minute. The Supreme Court declined to block a new Illinois ba law that bans assault-style weapons. The Illinois legislature enacted the measure in the wake of a July 4th shooting in the city of Highland Park last year. It killed seven people. The ban does not affect people who already own firearms impacted by the ban. At least eight people were killed and thousands were evacuated as flooding struck a northern region of Italy. The exceptional rains prompted Italian officials to call for a national plan to combat climate change induced flooding. Formula One canceled this weekend's Grand Prix in the Regionato to avoid the extra burden on local emergency crews. And House Republicans are expected to send a resolution to expel Congressman George Santos to the Ethics Committee. They will take a vote on this uh, motion this evening. The Ethics Committee may ultimately defer the resolution to the Department of Justice, uh, which uh, indicted Santos last week on 13 counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, and stealing public funds. Kelly, wow. back to you. Tyler, thank you. Uh, see you soon, Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, Elon Musk railing against the notion of work from home in his interview with CNBC last night. The laptop class is living in La La Land, okay? You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered, that they, they can't work from home? The, you know, 
the, the, the people that, that come fix your house, they, they can't work from home, but you can? Does that seem morally right? That's messed up. We'll have more on that next hour. And in the meantime, what is work from home doing to the REITs? And is it a bigger deal than the debt ceiling? We will dig into all of those risks next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. With less than two weeks to go before the June 1st deadline laid out by the Treasury Secretary Yellen in terms of a debt default, both the White House and Congress appear optimistic about getting a deal done. Here's what both President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy, who joined Squawk Box, said earlier today. Now we have a structure to find a way to come to a conclusion. The timeline is very tight, uh, but we're going to make sure we're in the room and get this done. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget that America will not default. And uh, every leader in the room understands the consequences that we fail to pay our bills. And it would be catastrophic for the, uh, for the American economy and the American people <clears throat> if we didn't pay our bills. So while we await an actual decision, our next guest has a look at what the three scenarios, an extension, a compromise, or a default, would all mean for the REITs. Yes, the REITs. Joining me now is Ron Camden. He's head of U.S. REITs and commercial real estate strategy at Morgan Stanley. Ron, it's good to see you again. Great. Thanks for having me. A lot of people might not realize there's a a REITs angle here to the debt ceiling. So talk to us. If we get a, a default, let's just start with the most severe scenario. What would that imply? Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, thought topic here because at the end of the day, the good news is that out of 160 REITs in the index, there's probably less than 10% that actually have direct exposure to the government. And if you have a scenario where you have a default, we think you could see consumer spending go down somewhere in the 10% plus range. And if you think about consumer spending going down, that impacts really the lower quality retail and the lodging REITs that are directly exposed to that. Right. That avenue. Right. And, and uh, am I correct that, you know, uh, Well Peak, DHC, I mean, are these some of the names you're talking about? Just explain that. Yeah, sure. So the direct exposure in the REIT space to the government comes in two forms. The first are some of the office REITs that have government agencies as tenants. And the second, to your point, is some of the healthcare REIT that have exposure to skilled nursing facilities. So a lot of skilled nursing facilities rely on Medicare and Medicaid payments for reimbursements. So Well, Peak, and Ventos all have some exposure, but the biggest exposure to skilled nursing are going to be names like OHI, uh, Omega, NHI, National Health, and CTRE. Uh, those are the names that have the, the biggest sort of uh, exposure to that to that sector. Yeah, and maybe the way to turn this all on its head because the markets are in a good mood today is to say, okay, so if a deal's reached, then maybe all those areas should flourish. Under the scenario of a deal or a compromise, what is what is the play for REITs that you envision? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. I think the you you're precisely right that the sectors that have faced the biggest overhang on this news will be the ones that would see the relief rally. And then some of the sectors, some of the defensive sectors, like the triple net REIT space that have uh, sort of outperformed prior to this would be the one to get left behind. And then, of course, we have the kicking the can scenario. And that kind of brings us into a situation where maybe a mix of all the the angles that you already uh, described. But then it also kind of puts uh, just fundamental questions about office back to the fore. I mean, that's the biggest worry spot unless the retail gets worse in a big way quickly for REITs. Would you say that that trumps anything that could happen out of Washington? Uh, You know, that in some ways, Elon Musk's comments are are more important if uh, if we start to see people really called back to the office in a big way. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think the kicking the can scenario is a difficult one because you have this significant overhang weighing on the REIT space and on businesses. And when you think about how long that could go for, it can certainly impact leasing activity, it could certainly impact business decisions, and that could create a little bit of an air pocket uh, for the REITs. What's important also is the context, right? This is happening at a time where the REITs are already facing financing headwinds as, as conditions tighten. So to add this fundamental headwind on top of the financing could be quite challenging for the sector. All right, Ron, thank you for your time today. It's good to check in with you again. Great. Thanks for having me. Ron Camden with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, lumber deflation, a decor downturn, and organized crime. Those are just a few headwinds retailers have already reported this earnings season. We will dig into their results and preview the next round on deck after this with the Dow up 424 points. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're now firmly entrenched in the retail portion of earnings season. Look at Home Depot today up almost 4%. Target turning positive up 2.5%. TJX had results this morning. It's fractionally lower. And Walmart reports tomorrow. Let's bring in Courtney Reagan to dig through these reports, Court. And a year or a, a moment, I should say, in which there's a lot of extra you know, focus, I guess we should say, on the consumer. Um, and like we get all these reports like, you know, credit card spending didn't go down in the first quarter and delinquencies are creeping up. But then you hear that maybe things are still OK. I know it is really tricky to discern some of that. To your point, I think Visa actually said, no, we're seeing some strong spending in discretionary categories. But then some of these other retailers like Target today said, no, actually, we're not. That's really? very soft for us. I think one theme that we've seen through some of these big guys, the TJX of the world, Target and Home Depot, is that home has been really soft hmm. across the category. TJX owns home goods, and right. those comps were down 7%. So that could be one of two things. It could be lower discretionary spending and or it could be a pull forward because we spent all that money during the pandemic when we were home. So totally. that's sort of one theme that we can pull out. But I do think that retailers are expressing some caution because that's what consumers are expressing. And I think that TJX's strong results does play into that narrative because that is largely known as sort of where you go to go treasure hunting and digging through the racks for those good discounts. Um, yes, obviously, Target is also known as sort of a value player, but sometimes you see a divergence in the performance of a Target versus a TJX um, in moments of consumer weakness. That's a great point. That If we were at one of these major turning points already, maybe this would be the time when we start to see them really breaking out one way or the other. And even Home Depot, for all of its, you know, struggles, the stock hasn't been that bad. Right. <laughs> and I know that's an odd way to put it, but and it's also surprising to me that the loss of Bed Bath, and maybe it's too soon to, to feel that full impact, but is not benefiting the existing players more as the consumer shifts. Yeah, I was thinking about that a little bit, too, when I saw that weakness on home goods. I thought, oh, that's funny. We haven't seen that captured. But obviously, that is still sort of ongoing, right? This unwinding of Bed Bath and beyond. And I also think you're going to see a lot of players take a little bit of that share, whether it's a Walmart, an Amazon, a Target. And so it may not. And I think, frankly, they've been doing it for a while. True. And so I'm not sure you're going to see it in some big swath move. But I, I, I do think that, you know, that's a really interesting point. And to your point about Home Depot's shares, I think so many smart investors recognize that Home Depot is a really good operator. Mm -hmm. This was a rare miss of a quarter. I think it's hard to know yet if this is a trend. Obviously, there were a lot of macro headwinds. You, me you mentioned what's going on with lumber deflation. I know it seems like an excuse, but they quantified it. They said yeah. there was 220 basis points, and bad weather took out 200 basis points uh, from their sales. Because if it's raining or it's cold, you're not going to plant flowers. You're not going to buy that patio set. I mean, that kind of does make sense. Absolutely. Even though it seems kind of like an excuse. We heard it from Tractor Supply, too. 
And we get lows next week. Maybe that'll give us a little more of a picture. We get Walmart in the morning, obviously. I mean, right. what's the expectation into that report? So obviously Walmart has a really, really big percentage of its sales in groceries, something like 55, 56%. And so that obviously drives trips and Walmart has been doing a lot to recapture other spend from that consumer that comes in for grocery or gets their groceries delivered. I think it's important to remember that the emergency SNAP benefit allotment did expire That's in right. April. Walmart warned at its investor day that it will likely dent April sales. But if they're still this low-cost player and consumers are still concerned about inflation in food and otherwise, they will likely pick up some consumer traffic there. So it could be an offset, but I do think we'll see a, a, some kind of an impact from that SNAP benefit. And I mean, maybe we should keep an eye on Foot Locker on Friday. I, I don't know if that's a you know, what is it, a barometer of teen spending, channel shifting, Nike itself. I mean, the new CEO, new strategy, like you said, mall. I mean, there's a lot of different areas that it hits, but it's kind of its own. It's up almost 5% today, by the way, and it's up 8% since Jan 1. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's a good follow-through for some of those brands that you mentioned, like Nike, like Under Armour, as they start to focus more on going direct to the consumer. Are, are people still going to a Foot Locker to buy those brands, or are they shifting more direct to consumer? And then what does that mean for an assortment at a Foot Locker going forward? It does seem that if there's any sort of theme lately, it's actually the triumph of brick and mortar. The Journal had a big piece about Warby Parker, totally. you know, the shopping, like, the direct-to-consumer really doesn't, it's not a great business model. It's so advertising intensive, and who would have thought this would be the conclusion? And that's an interesting point. Target actually reported negative digital comparable sales for the second quarter in a row. Wow. And I asked CEO Brian Cornell if he thinks that this is kind of an inflection point insofar as that they've hit sort of their maximum percentage of sales that will come online versus in-store. And he tried to point more to saying, no, it's just we've seen the softness in discretionary categories, and we sell a lot of those online. So he doesn't seem to think that that digital growth is over, but it's been two quarters of negative comparable sales. And as far back as they've been telling us about it, those are the only two negative quarters I've seen. Wow, Courtney, thank you. Thanks. We'll see what Walmart says tomorrow. That's our Courtney Reagan. Coming up, not just retailers seeing signs of a slowdown. One strategist say credit might have peaked in the muni market as the COVID aid and recovery boom peter out. They've got sectors best and worst positioned to weather that uncertainty. Dow's up 451. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. According to data from Refinitiv, last week marked the 12th straight week investors pulled money out of conventional muni funds with nearly $250 million in outflows. And my next guest says while munis could be a potential casualty in a prolonged government shutdown, that's not actually the biggest headwind the market is facing. Joining me now is Jennifer Johnson, Franklin Templeton's SVB and director of Muni Bond Research. Good to see you again, Jennifer. Welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. So what is the big is is work from home the biggest headwind? I feel like there's a theme here today. Yes, that's definitely going to be one of the themes that we're watching, and it's definitely regional. We'll have some areas that we expect to perform well um, that are seeing a lot of growth and a lot of in-migration. And then we're going to have other areas where we think there's going to be some weakness and probably some turnover in some of the commercial, um, particularly office buildings. And the question is, what is the impact both direct and indirect on the local municipal credits in that region. Do you think that's why people are pulling money out of munis? I wonder if it's just a yield thing where they go, you know, I used to be in munis because it was the only thing that offered yield, especially tax adjusted. And now I can go into T-bills. And even if it intellectually doesn't make sense, it still feels good to get 5% instead of 3.5%. Yeah, we feel we still feel pretty confident that even if there is some sort of slowdown or a recession of any type, we still expect the municipal sector to perform well. Uh, we have histor historically lower default rates. 
um, and higher credit quality than many of our, our corporate indices that we're often compared to. So we still feel like this is still a safer, um, less risky uh, area of um, the market to invest in. Were there any lessons from 2011 or kind of the age of austerity for munis? Because I tend to think of them obviously as more state and local versus federal. Yes. So I, I think definitely there have been lessons that are learned. And I thought we saw during the pandemic when there was so much uncertainty, a lot of really prudent financial decision making, of course, helped by the significant federal COVID aid, but it allowed a lot of municipalities and mass transit, all different types of sectors to try to sock away money, take advantage of the um, money that was flowing in so that they'd be prepared for the what for the rainy day, and that might be what we're about to see. So they've performed well. Let's see if they continue with that good governance and financial decision-making of things slow. How distressed are munis for areas, uh, you know, exposed to major work-from-home shifts like, you know, New York City subway but bonds? I think they just delayed an offering this week, although maybe that was a, a yield uh, thing, timing thing. Um, San Francisco, I mean, the obvious candidates. What what are the yields like there? And and. I, is that a place you think investors could, you know, go out on a limb and and ride it out or should they stay away? Sure. So we think there can still be opportunities within pretty much any sector in any region. And it's really important to kind of peel away the onion and see actually what backs the bonds um, that you're interested in, in purchasing. Sometimes you're not actually exposed to the direct revenues of fare boxes, as an example, for the tickets that you buy. To, to ride mass transit. So it's important to look at those and understand that and recognize there could still be opportunities to invest um, in something that maybe has a tax-backed um, repayment stream or state and federal aid. Right. And usually people go, OK, well, you know what? Healthcare, that's recession-proof. That's a place I'll go. But in Muni uh, speak today, that's a place that has you a little bit concerned, right, because of the loss of that federal COVID aid. Exactly. So that's another area that we're looking at. And they, just like all of us in our personal lives, are impacted by, you know, higher costs and inflation. And for healthcare, they're seeing it quite um, strongly at the employee level. It's very difficult to find employees, um, particularly nurses. And so hospitals are having to tap into contract agency um, type of employees, essentially traveling nurses. And that's far more expensive than having somebody on your own payroll. And so they've, they've done that to meet the needs of their um, community, but it's definitely eaten away at operating margins. So we're, we're waiting to see um, hiring improve and um, getting a little bit less reliant on this contract date. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, what's the word, a selective, you know, with some of these areas that look a little bit more challenged. Maybe, maybe that's the key term. Absolutely. And I, I think that's key. And, I, you know, I think our research staff prides itself on being able to go in and, and find those opportunities, even in these sectors that are maybe being talked about as being um, an area to stay away from. We want to go find the opportunities where we do think that there are bright spots. All right. Well, you got to convince the people who are panicking out of munis, Jennifer. It's thanks for your uh, I should say thank you for your time today. And it's good to see you again. Thanks. You too. Jennifer Johnson with Franklin Templeton. That does it for us on The Exchange today. Up next on Power Lunch, we'll dig further into that Elon Musk interview and we'll have a look at what could be the most valuable historical document ever sold at auction. Tyler, getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 